Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You're very yeah. easy to caricature. Well, you know that. That's okay. You've always been. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not shades of gray, not to use right. that term, okay? But uh, I'm not, and nor would I want to be. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman, and with us is former Mayor Rahm Emanuel, book author Rahm <laughs> Emanuel. I just got done reading this book about... The nation, city, why mayors are now running the world. If this, if mayors were running the world, why did you run away from being mayor? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, as you know, uh, you were there. Uh, it's a long eight years, and uh, I felt like I had done my job. But if you take back the concept when I started writing about this. Um, you started talking about it before you started writing about way it, Way before, too. as you know. You and I had many conversations. I did not see where we'd be right like now. The mayor of London is all became four months ago the prime minister. You have uh, three mayors in the uh, race, uh, uh, and there were two others: Cory Booker, former mayor of Newark, uh, Secretary Castro, former mayor of San Antonio. And what's interesting, outside of Grover Cleveland, we've never had a mayor as president of the United States. But it is about the uh, a third of the book is about centrality of. Uh, you know, I, I would call it about a political science, about the center of gravity moving from the national government back local. And I always kind of view it as, if you think of the economy somewhat as a global, all politics is local. And as one gets more intensely global, the other one is getting more intensely local. When did this that, movement start? Well, here's what I think. Uh, we've been here before. Uh, uh, what's it, and But this one is a, is a different take. And what I mean by that, we've had before where local politics and local government was a central force in our political culture. Um, two events that I, th- uh, that I think make this slightly different, or three. One, when you think of all the things that you, where you live, where you work, where you send your kids to school, the amenities of your community, your libraries, your parks, those are all services delivered by local government. What makes this slightly different than anything in the past is that as the national governments have stepped back from any responsibilities and getting things done, Cities have had to take on more and more national and international issues, whether that's climate change, immigration, inclusive economic growth, income inequality, things that used to be totally the real estate purview. And the, uh, and that makes this bigger, different. Transportation. Everything. Yeah, totally. You know, it was a national highway project, not a, a local transportation. So that makes this moment in time different. The second is, if you think from... World War I through the Great Society of Lyndon Johnson, there was confidence in the national government. Today, 
22, 24% of the people have confidence in the national government, and yet at se- in the mid-70s, in local government. It's the government that touches your life, that you can also, in a period of distance and alienation, feel you can impact what impacts you. But and you that- argue that the federal government is broken, sclerotic. What <laughs> happened to Well, there's this? a number of things on technology and other things, but I would say one, you know, and I talk about this in the book, and I participated in some of these black arts. I do think redistricting, uh, I always used to say that, you know, the system was set up for voters to pick their representatives. Now representatives pick their voters, both through technology. And they uh, target them with social media. uh, It's all kinds of things. And number two, I think uh, the Citizens United was a total um, uh, disaster. Now let's explain what that is. It's a Supreme Court. Court. It's a Supreme Court decision about it actually defined, well, most importantly, which is different, it defines corporations as citizens and then allows, and then that's a permission slip. Then to make contributions. Yeah, and so to me- Campaign contributions. uh, Yes, and then you have much more ideological giving. So there's those factors that are uh, a piece of this. And then our politics, when I say this, you know, who knew that if communism and the Cold War would be disappear, all our differences would come forth with such great, you know, that war, the Cold War, freedom versus, uh, you know, totalitarianism, democracy versus an authoritarian type of government or capitalism versus communism. Once that battle was gone, all the differences that you could somewhat, so you know, repress come forth with a force that we had never predicted. So I think those are some big factors. There's other factors that lead to it. And I do think one of the things, Fran, is you look at Chicago's somewhat unique in this area, but not really, it is mayors now in cities are doing things in uh, ways that they never did before. So those are some of the factors that make both Brussels, London, Washington dysfunctional. And I say it in the book that our cities are matching up our strengths against exactly the weaknesses you see in the federal government. If they're distant, local government is immediate uh, or intimate. If they're dysfunctional, local government is impactful. Uh, Where they are disinterested, local government is immediate. And so the strengths and the weaknesses match up at a particular time. You begin this book, as you often did as mayor, talking about your grandfather. (laughs) And he had a nickname, Big Banga. Banga. Big Banga. What is that? Where did that come from? Well, you wouldn't know it looking at me. My grandfather on my mother's side was 6'3", 6'4", close to 300 pounds. He was a meat cutter, truck driver, steel worker, amateur boxer. Um, That's all, uh, whatever genes there were, I never got any of those genes, okay? I got my dad's side of the genes. And he was a huge man, and he was a huge presence. What's a banger? What is it? Uh, it just was the way we called him. He was big banger. And because he would bang oh. the table okay. when he wanted to get heard about something. And, and he you was, do it with a knife. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, he would bang the table. And, you know, I described the scene in Albany Park in the apartment on the thir- third floor of the three flat. All Every Sunday night we would come. It would be a whole family Everybody was arguing, screaming. Nobody was, you know, kids are running around. Fighting Every, for attention, fi- Everybody, Everybody's, well, fighting for attention, that's minor compared to the fighting about <laughs> politics. I mean, that, the attention was minor. Uh, and, you know, grandpa's way of telling you he loved you was to hit you. And he would just smack you. And he was just a big presence in everybody's life. He was a force of nature. 
Uh, in fact, there's a at the synagogue that he built on Kedzie. The rabbi had him at the top of the bima, and he would smack his hand on the table if there was too much talking during the rabbi's services. And he was just a big man. And why was that your jumping off point for this book? Because I think his journey to America and what he took so important. And my kids say, don't talk about grandpa, because if I start talking about him, I'll start crying. So I'm trying to rush through this. But he, you know, he was a presence in our lives growing up. He lived with you. And then, well... At a, yes. At a what happens is when I'm about 10 years old, he had to get, uh, Grandma and Grandma, he had retired. He had to get his papers together. Um, uh, and they, it took a while. So they, uh, Grandma and Grandpa moved in with us before they, he wanted to, he wanted to die in Israel. Yeah. That was his wish. Um, and so, and he knew that uh, because Grandma was sick and she had a stroke and she had diabetes, she was not healthy, that there was only a amount of days. So they lived with us, and he not only was a presence growing up, but physically lived with us for two years, him and Grandma. And um, he would get up by ritual 4.30 in the morning. And you could know that when you—and I get up now at 5, in 5.30. And, Me too. Yeah, and he would be downstairs in his boxers, his tank top, his knee-high socks, his slippers, and he would make, you know— he would make the dozen eggs, the loaf of bread, three flank steaks, and that was your breakfast. I mean, it was like a protein shake. It was like, you know, and then he, because he always had a half a cow in the basement, you know, on the white paper, SKT, skirt steak, FLK, flank in the black ink. Uh, and uh, he would, and then he would sit and read the paper and read a book. And, God bless him for that. And he would, but he, with a fourth grade education. And remember, yeah. and he leaves Eastern Europe, the pogroms, at 10 years old by himself. And he finds a third cousin on Maxwell Street. And that begins our family journey to this country and this city. Now, you had a front row seat to the demise of the federal government. Yeah. And you I said... Left, I, I left, I lost a finger there. <laughs> <laughs> you, not, not, but okay. You say that by the time Barack Obama took office, the mm -hmm. federal government was broken. You write, we tried to fix it, but we couldn't. What do no. you mean? Well, I think that... Uh, well, first of all, you got to start with progressive politics. The, the view of a progressive politics is... Uh, an affirmative sense that government is a force for good. And if you don't have that premise, it's hard to see, you know, as Bill Clinton used to say, people have a confidence in the federal government, but they're not sure we could even organize a one-car parade. That was mm -hmm. his comment. Now, if you go back through in American history from World War II forward, all the way through even Reagan, Bush 41, progress was made in a bipartisan fashion, and I give some anecdotes to this in the book. Basically, from Bush 43 through Obama, Unless you controlled both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue, very rarely anything goes forward. Bush's taxes get done when they have the House and the Senate. Oh, President Clinton gets a balanced budget, which becomes before Bush 43, with a Republican Congress and a Democratic president. That was the norm until something else. And President Obama could not, and I use this anecdote, which opens up the chapter on education. Uh, 50 to 60 years ago, Lyndon Johnson sees cities on fire literally yeah and comes up with not only the model cities but the, the head of it society. is head start head start early right. childhood education who put flood the city with money with a good effort towards education johnson was an early childhood was an educator himself obama tries to do pre-k 
with John Boehner, who used to be the chairman of Education Committee. Boehner, because of his internal caucus politics, stiffs it. And Obama, not taking no for an answer, decides that he's going to call together the one political entity and individual that can get this done. He calls together 200 mayors, and he says, I can't get this done nationally, but it's so important, I need you to get it done. Now, 50 years earlier, mayors are totally dysfunctional, can't get anything done. Their cities are on fire. There's riots. There's a whole white yeah. flight, et cetera. Johnson's to save cities provides them pre-K. Obama can't get the national government to respond to the needs of early childhood education and calls together the mayors. And says, please, please do, do what that. I can't. Can. Uh, yes. And, that, and that's the launch pad for this uh, kind of the transformation. If you thought of the Great Society as the apex of government's willpower capacity to the point that the national government had basically broken. Now, friend, one other thing, and I think you would, uh, you know my passion for this, so if I uh, may. Uh, Chicago was the first city to create uh, a scholarship so you could get to community college and go free, the Chicago Star Scholarship. 8,000 students already used it in Chicago and growing. Boston, Louisville, San Francisco, Oakland, Denver, have and more have their own variation of this. Now, I'm not, my mother thinks it's the most innovative thing done in education, but it's a pretty, you would agree, in the last 20 years, one of the more innovative things done. The Secretary of Education is not called. Neither Committee of Education in the House or the Senate has asked for a hearing. And you have now multiple cities doing something that's adding two more years of education to a child's life. And there's no interest. It's not even like they haven't done anything. They haven't even inquired to do anything. And to me, those are metaphors of it's broken, it's disinterested. It, you know, everybody walks around, you go to a, any institute, anybody studying anything, we need to make go beyond high school education as a bare minimum. There's city, small cities, big cities, medium-sized cities, all trying to figure this out, all experimenting, and what used to be the laboratory of democracy, and nobody has said, you know, Betsy DeVos has not set out an all call and said, come tell us, what have you learned? In your education section, you talk about your fights with Rauner and how you you backed him into a corner uh, to yeah. to change the school formula, and you accuse him of having an agenda of driving the CPS into bankruptcy mm-hmm. and breaking the CTU. Mm-hmm. Some people thought that your feud with mm-hmm. Rauner, who you used to vacation with and share of sure. expensive bottles of wine, mm-hmm. was phony. I never thought it was phony. I knew it was real. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about it a little bit. Well, there's bit nothing about worse that. than a, 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 a friend just, who becomes. Uh, yeah, a friend who becomes a foe. But I mean, here's. So let me back up. Uh, I was very angry at him. He had an ideological thing. It was about to see, you know, forget about it. But he was very angry. At, he wanted to break the union. He also had a ideological, like he did on everything, view that you needed bankruptcy to eviscerate all the benefits. Uh, That's one and two. Three, you also know that for 70 years, Chicago had been trying to rewrite the school funding formula. Four, Illinois was rated dead last in funding for poor kids in the United States of America. And Chicago public schools were the victim of that. Five, I try to make sure that Chicago, Peoria, Aurora, all the cities that had a high density of poor kids were in it together. That was a strategy. But 
what really finally really set it off, the kind of, uh, you know, what I would say that really the, broke the camel's back was uh, the CPS was going out with a financing. Yeah, I remember. And he announced that he was going to take CPS into receivership debt, which he did not have the authority and to uh, uh, the Attorney General Matt, Lisa Madigan's great credit. She immediately issued a letter said, you don't have the authority to do this. But it rattled the markets. Now, in all fairness to you, you guys asked me, what am I doing out in New York? And I couldn't say that we were trying to, because of the legal For separation. sure, you were yeah, trying I, I, to I, yeah, reassure. Was, because, but there was legal separations between this corporate account and the CPS. I was trying to save something because without that money, he then thought once I broke, I would force Madigan in college in a break. But he was willing to put poor kids at risk for his ideological. And I, at that point, you know. And you I, managed to save that well, we, bond we, issue. We, sa- we saved the bond. Co- it was costly. It went from, I'm doing this by memory, but just say like, it went from like $1.2 billion to like $680 million or something. I mean, it was it was cut in half. We did pull it off, but it was like, but was, I will say that, but, but I was like, Fran, I don't, I'm not a wallflower. I fight hard when I believe it, but he was willing. But I think I have boundaries, or at least I believe I have boundaries. Decency. Yeah, that you know, I never touch people's personal lives. I don't go. He was willing to put at risk three hundred plus thousand kids and their education so he could have his vision of bankruptcy. Now I do compliment him later on. In the Discovery Center, the DPI, we work together to yeah. be a vision. But on this have, thing, now that you're both out of office, have you patched things up? Have you talked? No, it's not really important. We have. There's been communication and stuff, and I've, I've talked to Diana and stuff like that. But it's you know, just it, Diana. I, I, he and I have. Uh, I, I try to leave things private. No, but I mean, but we, we had, have had, we've have, had some communication. Have you had dinner together? Yeah, have I, I'm you... not going to do that. We've had communication. Yeah, and how is it now? I just it's... Has the ice been broken? Is the Cold War over? Are you <laughs> going to go back on vacation together? <laughs> no, I don't think we'll be vacationing anytime soon. Are so. you going to share I think any bottles a of chance, wine? I think there's a greater chance that you and I will go on vacation together before that. <laughs> no, seriously, though. Have you? I mean, look, you have a history with this man. It's okay. So you've it, had history before. I've had history before. But are you are you going to rekindle that friendship? It will take time. I, I, I don't. But maybe. I'd never say never on that. Look, uh, it, we haven't yet. It's going to take time. This really crossed the line for me. You don't look. This may be the early childhood educator in me. This may be the son of a pediatrician in me. You don't put children at risk for a political goal. You just don't. Who reached out to who to to reproach? It was a, he uh, sent me a text while I was on my bike trip. Okay, and then you said, you answered? Uh, yeah, of course. Okay, and have you had lunch? If you sent me a text, oh, I, Fran, it's not important. I'm not going to do it. Okay. I love you. I'm not going to do it. It's what, what because, you know, I'm just not going to do it. Okay? All right. So you mentioned- I in- mean, I will, let me say this. Di- uh, he was not in town, so it's, it's not a, when uh, my father passed away, Diana came to the funeral and stuff like that. Did he? I said he wasn't in town. So oh, I he wasn't in town. Okay. okay. All right, so that was a gesture okay. as well. Okay. Um, so you also mentioned in the book the role of social media and the balkanization of the news yeah. media. What happened there? How did it happen? And how is that feeling? I think the, this I think I say it phenomenon? in the book that I think the biggest, worst decision, one of the worst decisions the FCC, Federal Communication Committee, does, is a decision on the fairness doctrine, and it's set in place. 
a series of things, and you can we see them today manifested through Fox, etc. And I'm also, you know, although I do, uh, may God not strike me down, I do periodically watch Fox, etc. But I basically, I too aggregate, you know, to information that I trust or I think I believe in more than I, you know, before. And it basically, you know, when you look at it's true about cable. You look at other uh, periodicals, et cetera. So we do this, but I think the worst decision that was a, you know, kind of the uh, starting uh, gun going off was the elimination of the fairness doctrine by the FCC. And then you end up with things like Sinclair Broadcasting, as we are familiar here in the city of Chicago. You end up uh, with things like... Uh, Fox uh, and what they've done to news, and you've seen that both through recent movies, et cetera. But it has uh, basically uh, triggered where people aggregate themselves to a level of information that they're reaffirms uh, views rather than challenge you to think anew and fresh. Right. And I'm. And we I'm kind a, of talk up our own I'm, shirt sleeves. I can observe it, and I'm as guilty as anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in, there are some other scores that you settle, and people have criticized you for that. Uh, like for what? example, with Wirtz and Ricketts, you I talk about you talk about how you give wouldn't me this section. Let's read. Give them, you wouldn't give them subsidies. And I did, it's a, here's, but here's the thing: it is true. One, of, if you're in a city and you're a mayor, one of the big subjects today is: do you underwrite sporting teams? It was not what I said was they wanted an extension of uh, what was then a prior 20 years earlier property tax relief. And words. I, you're talking words now. Well, yeah. over at the United Center. I also compliment uh, Jerry Reinsdorf and the Reinsdorf people for what they do with BAM and other type of stuff. So it's not a settling score. I mean, right in Milwaukee, north, right north to us. But words huge, was critical yeah. of you at the end and you that were was very about the amu- That was, yeah, he was. It was about the amusement tax, not about the property. So you, you get the last word in the book by saying that, you know, you stopped him from doing this. I, what I did was the threat, the, the offer was if you, we get the property tax, we'll make these investments. And I said, you will not get uh, another sweetheart deal. They still made the investments, that the investments were not dependent. And I think when you look at... I don't mean to pick on it, but you look at what Dallas, Milwaukee, Atlanta, there's plenty of academic work, let alone real experiences. Should a city be subsidizing these sports things? We did not do it here in Chicago. It was not about settling a score, but it was touching on a very, a third of the book, as I said to you, Fran, is about urban studies. A third is about political science. And it's Winston Churchill, the other third is Winston Churchill once said, uh, when after he lost his re-election in 44. How do you think history will treat you? And he goes, very well. And they said, how do you know? And he goes, I plan, I wrote on, it. I plan on writing. No, I plan on writing it. <laughs> now, you also mentioned in the subsidy category. So it was, I, I, let me say this. I know what one person, I'm not trying to settle score. I'm trying to actually touch on an important subject in urban politics, which is how do you deal with major entities like sports teams that are now owned increasingly by extremely wealthy people and uh, do you subsidize that stadium with all the benefits that come, but all the liabilities that come? Now, not only on, on the uh, Wrigley Field and the United Center, but as you know, prior to my tenure, if you were a big corporation, you could write off the skybox. We eliminated that right. uh, tax loophole. Now, on the subsidy so question, So I've been pretty consistent on that. 
You also mentioned the thing about Amazon, and you say that yeah. that New York was probably lucky that they didn't come mm-hmm. with the and take the three billion dollar subsidy that was offered. And yet here you were putting together a package of two and a quarter billion. You went after them pretty no, heavy but, with heavy subsidies. But as you remember, I think you were there. You looked, I was I, indeed. I, okay. That's so me. To, that was uh, me. Yeah. So no, wait. Let's go through because it's actually an important policy. And it gets to a core part of two parts of the book. One is the tech economy is taking off in New York because of what Mayor Bloomberg did with the research center on Roosevelt Island, which, you know, that's the one thing Rauner and I worked hard. I gave him credit for. We created the help create the seeds for the DPI, the Discovery Center, bringing University of Illinois up to what is now called uh, block, uh, rather Neighborhood 78. They didn't have to have the subsidies to get all Facebook, Google, Amazon in there. It's the research and the talent that comes out of that research. That is what we're replicating. Number two on our bid, the one thing that Chicago put forward was a train station, a benefit that everybody gets, not just Amazon. The subsidies that you're thinking about came out of the state of Illinois, not the city. City of Chicago was, we will open and build a train station there. You and the South Loop residents get the benefit, not you alone. So you don't see it as a hypocrisy to say, oh, New York was No, I not only lucky. that, no, it's again, it's about urban politics. So how do you do this? And Fran, if you go through my record in Congress, I introduced a bill eliminating subsidies. Uh, if you gave a, comp- a city, gave a company uh, tax subsidies, if they moved, you'd have to pay that back. That's been a consistent thing going back to my congressional record. You mention also in the book that income inequality is the most pressing issue facing cities today. And yet you were labeled mayor 1% <laughs> by your critics. Yeah. And you were uh, accused of ignoring that problem. And well, so much so that you've got the current mayor who's declared war on poverty. Yeah. So, uh, look, I understand from my days, my political kind of new Democrat philosophy and the short stint I did in investment banking, that you would say, oh, 1%. But if you ride the Red Line South, which is the first major train system we dealt, a billion dollars, not a lot of 1%. If you take the Chicago Star Scholarship, which 81% of the kids, 8,000 kids who get free community college, first one of their families to go to college, not a lot of 1%. Minimum wage, raised it to 13, one of the first cities, universal full-day pre-K and full-day kindergarten. So I know what the record is, and I know what the politics of a charge is without substance. I get why it's easy. You're very and, easy to caricature. Well, you know that. Uh, that's okay. You've always been. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not shades of gray, not to use right. that term, okay? But uh, I'm not, and nor would I want to be. But here's the thing. If all I was, the first six months in your paper under Mary Mitchell recorded this, I brought together all the grocers when we dealt with the food desert. No neighborhood either on the north side or well-to-do, has a food desert. And it was the first time, as Mary Mitchell noted, that the office of the mayor was used to make corporate grocers invest in our challenging, depressing neighborhoods. But when you go through the educational component, you go through the grocery stores and the neighborhood developments in Woodlawn, Washington Park, Bronzeville, Pullman, and you look at the investments that were made there, I think I know what I have done and I'm comfortable that the work that has been discussed for years and never acted on, got acted on. And so are if, you saying you raised your own war on poverty, just didn't call it that? I don't, I don't, I would never, first of all, 
there's pluses and minuses to Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty if you go through history. Um, I didn't I didn't call it a war because I don't think that's what was marshaled. What I do think is both through education and investments, whether included, but you and I have not discussed here, the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund. I don't think in a city the idea you should pit one community against another. There's enough conflict. The question is, can you find the foundation of commonality? And I think actually the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund was one of those big threads that actually, rather than resent the success of bringing in businesses, investment, you can't do anything you want to do in challenging areas without success driving the revenue. That there's a better, I think, more long-lasting approach. Now, I get the I get the caricature. I get politics. But I know does, what the, I know what the policies. Calling it a war on poverty pit one group against another. Uh, I, I first of all I don't I don't usually like the term war, so I have a, a yeah okay. I do think inclusive economic growth should be our north star, and we and if it's a if you establish what your north stars are, you can actually ha- bring people together rather than only organize them based on opposition. Now. You mentioned some mayors in the uh, who in your book, and very flatteringly, Mike Bloomberg, the the, the new vanguard of mayor, who uh, Pete Buttigieg. Doesn't matter how small his city is, he's very innovative, etc. So let's talk about the presidential race now. But let me do one thing. For the right, it gives you why caricatures are all in my fault. Maybe people shouldn't be blinded by him, Fran. I, I think we would agree. I'm a pretty strong partisan Democrat. Sure. Okay, I mention Republican mayors and Democratic mayors. I don't mention only Democratic mayors. B, when you go back through my friendships in Congress, who's one of my dearest friends? Ray LaHood. Sure. So I don't buy much into caricatures. I, I don't. I think it's actually responsibly all of us not to deal with other people's presumption and preconceived notions, but to actually see if you can see past them. I do think that those two mayors have uh, something to offer. And one thing I would say about Mayor Pete in this moment in time, which I think underscores what the book was trying to capture when I started writing it, when Biden attacked, did that attack at a Mayor Pete up in New Hampshire, you know, cobblestone street lights while I'm dealing with healthcare, it was supposed to basically said, look how petty, small he is. In mm-hmm. fact, that's the government people believe in. The stuff he was believing, they, that's like, you're, you're offering me what Hanukkah Harry usually leaves behind the tree, you know, on the, on the dra- with the dreidel. It's not going to happen here. And so I actually think when you look what people, the government people have confidence in, the elected leaders that people have confidence in, that ad actually rebounded to Mayor Pete's benefit. It didn't actually, now, there, and the reason I'm confident in this analysis is he didn't get the normal bounce you get out of Iowa because Iowa's mess. His debate before the election, he did okay, but Amy basically won. And yet he comes within a point and a quarter of the front runner. How else do you explain this ad that was supposed to diminish diminish him actually increased his stature? You've been very outspoken about the need for the Democrats to turn to someone other than Bernie Sanders, but he's... Can he be stopped short of the amount of, of, of votes he needs for the nomination before the convention in Milwaukee? Well, right now I would say he's the front runner. After Super Tour Tuesday, you'll find out if he's still the front runner and the presumptive nominee or just the front runner. And I can't predict that for you. Here, but to the other part of your question, 
if you take Bill Clinton's elections, Barack Obama's two elections, and you take the 2006 midterms and the 2018 midterms, those six elections where the Democrats win nationally, it's the same playbook. What I call, and I've written about, the metropolitan majority where you have an incredible urban-suburban coalition that really is a juggernaut for Democrats. And I, um, Bernie's strategy, political strategy, let alone his policy goals, in my view, basically th- throw in the face of those six elections, not one, not two, six of them, that are the same playbook. And I think given Donald Trump, given what's at risk both in the House, the Senate, the governorships, the state house, it is too much of a roll of the dice to take six successful elections, national elections, throw them away, and try the Jeremy Corbyn strategy that you're going to get a young voter, blue-collar turnout that has never been done in 60 years for Democrats. Because the assumption is when you blow through all the crap, you don't need suburban swing voters. We can do it with young and blue-collar voters. And we have six elections saying, no, the only way to do it is this way. And he's, we're willing to roll the dice because I think, personally, Donald Trump, and not on economics so much, on his total disregard for democratic institutional principles of the freedom of the press, the freedom of the political process, the respect for differences, that is what's at risk, which is what I think the care character of this country. Capitalism is not the character of this country. Our democratic norms are, and I think that is what is at risk, and I think to take a roll of the dice. You know, the truth is, Bernie and I worked on re-importation of pharmaceutical products. That was my bill in 2003, which we passed out of the house over delay. We, I have my free community college. We worked on other types of educational things. We don't really disagree about a more enhanced safety net. But I do think given what's at stake here, is not to take the Obama model, the Clinton model, the midterms of 18 and 2006 and say, I don't care what those show. I have a better way, which has never, ever been proven. But has the coronavirus and the no. the, the plunging <laughs> of the stock market changed the equation in any way and Trump's strength in any way? Well, um. That's, you're in the, you know, week two of a th- something. One is you don't know what the, if this will actually trigger a recession. Uh, two, whether people will see the types of situation here in the United States, whether that will be seen. And, you know, one of the things that, let me back up, I, I'm only, a, I'm a product somewhat of both what I read and what I did. The, I knew in, when I was chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, that when Katrina happened, because remember, by this time you're in year four of the war and in Iraq, it was not going well. Uh, And President Trump, uh, President Bush rather, had corruption, incompetence, you know, a whole host of things that were weighing in on him. And then you had this domestic moment where he said everything's great and everybody else could see everything else but him. Um, there's a possibility that the United States government's reaction 
to this pandemic. And if it becomes a full-fledged pandemic, I mean, our, my flight today back in when I was in Washington was full. So no, clearly it's not affected yet domestic travel. But if, when it starts to have an impact, will they see their day related to the uh, incapacity of the federal government to respond? And remember, this is a person who has now spent three and a half years tearing down scientists, academic and medical professionals, the government as a force of an instrument of, uh, you know, delivering services. So we're too early to take a take on that. It, can it rebound that way? Sure. Has it done that yet? Way too early to see. And Bloomberg, can he rebound from his horrible <laughs> Friend, what is this, like opening nine, debate? Nine, opening debate, and and he did better in the second one. No, I don't, you know, whoever his strategy who, of skipping whoever the recommended the debate, just hang up your jersey and get out of politics. That was a bad one. Yeah, and the second yeah. one was it better enough to? No, no, it was not it, better enough. It wasn't better enough. So look, I mean, here's the thing that I would just say. So is he finished really, in spite of all of his money? No, I'm not. No, I don't. Usually, you don't write off somebody who can write a billion dollar check personally. You just, I just. Here's what I will say to you. When Hillary came back on the campaign field, she was rusty. It took a while. I remember. I so I run in Congress in '02. I've been involved in and around politics, DCCC, et cetera. But when I came back to, uh, from leaving President Obama's side to run for mayor, it took a you know a week or two to get my you know training wheels off and get back on the you know the rhythm. Mike Bloomberg hasn't been a candidate working retail politics for a decade, and going to the Aspen Institute and being applauded for your philanthropy is not politics, and so. Uh, whoever recommended that the first thing you're going to do is plunge a debate is as close as you can get to just getting right the in fire. there, uh, you know, short of standing at an L stop or something like that. So can he, everybody has, can, you know, Americans have great faith in the second act. So to say nobody has a second act is impossible, but he has a long way to go. And I'm not sure just his resources can make up for it. Okay. Mayor Rahm Emanuel, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with the book sales. Fran, have we bought one yet? I haven't. I have three <laughs> copies, and I haven't bought one yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Well, you'll be starting the secondary market in no time. <laughs> we'll see you all next week. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.